0: Midtown Detroit studios of WDET. This is Detroit Today.
1: Is it election season already? Today we're going to hear from two hopefuls for Congress next year in what should be a really highly contested mid-Michigan race to succeed Congresswoman Alyssa Slotkin, who's decided to run for the Senate. We're going to hear from Republican Tom Barrett and Democrat Curtis Hertel. Then we'll talk about the fight that broke out at a GOP committee meeting over the weekend and what it says about the turmoil on that side of the aisle. That's all next on Detroit Today. But first, the news from NPR. Good day and welcome to Detroit Today on 101.9 WDET. I'm your host, Stephen Henderson, and I'm really glad you've decided to join us today. Before we get started with the show, talking about politics around the state, I need to take a moment to note a pretty profound loss on Detroit's political, spiritual, and cultural landscape. If you're a Detroiter, Whether you knew Reverend Joanne Watson through her radio show, her time on city council, her work in the religious community, or her many fights for racial justice, you do know her because you've felt the effects of her work. That's how much impact she's had on this city and our people. Her life was not just dedicated to making life better for Detroiters in whatever capacity she was serving— It was centered around the idea of lifting this community, one person at a time or all at once, to a more just, more beneficial place. One of my favorite things about Joanne was her willingness to make us dream. It never seemed to matter much to her whether something she wanted to be true for Detroit was impractical, too expensive, or politically unachievable. Her eye was always focused on what was right, what we needed, what we deserved. She was great at making us feel equal in every context, even if, in reality, equality was still a distant goal. And everything else, all the practicality, all the things that stand in the way— She always figured, well, that's someone else's problem. I'm going to stick with what I know Detroiters need. You only need to witness the current effort in Detroit to actually document and assess the need for reparations for African-Americans to see an example. Not too long ago, people were calling Joanne crazy, extremist, even out of touch, for insisting that we needed to do this. But she never strayed, and she lived to see it happen. She lived to see other people coalesce around the vision that she had for justice in Detroit. We just don't have too many other folks like that in politics or activism at any level. And so we all should be thankful that we had Joanne Watson fighting for what's right, for as long as we did in this community. I will miss her personally, and this community is lesser for her not being with us. Okay, let's get started with the show. It is pretty early in the election season for next year, but already the 7th Congressional District race is being called one of the most consequential in the 2024 election cycle. And that's for a couple reasons. Democrat Alyssa Slotkin, who holds that seat now, has decided to run for Senate. So there's no incumbent in the seat. What's more, this district is really, really purple these days. And it's a little bit of a temperature check on how Democrats and Republicans might perform in competitive districts all around the country. This was one of the closest races in the last election in 2022 anywhere in the country. But even though there won't be an incumbent in the race, there are two familiar faces who've already raised their hand, saying they're interested in representing the 7th District. Tom Barrett was a representative in the Michigan legislature from 2015 to 2022, and he has launched a bid for the 7th District district seat he also ran for it uh, before he lost to slotkin by just five points about twenty thousand votes and again that was a midterm election where democrats did very well in the state winning majorities in both the michigan house and senate and nationally they did better than anticipated so now tom is running again and this time he says he's running on a hawkish foreign policy stance he wants stronger border enforcement with mexico He wants to take a more defensive stance against China, and he doesn't like the fact that the United States has pulled out of Afghanistan. Now, a little later in the program, we're going to talk with another familiar face that has jumped into the race for the 7th Congressional District. Former state senator Curtis Hertel, he is a Democrat and he says he wants to go to Washington to represent mid-Michigan. We'll talk with Curtis a little later. We'll also talk with a reporter a little later about some of the chaos inside the state GOP and what we're to make of what's going on on that side of the aisle. But before we get to those things, we are really happy to be talking with Tom Barrett about why he's running again for Congress and what do he thinks are the biggest problems affecting those who live in and around the 7th District, which includes Lansing. Tom, welcome back to Detroit Today.
2: Thank you for having me. I really appreciate it, and it's uh, great to be with you in the studio. I think the last time we did this, it was over the phone. It and was over the phone. It's yeah. a little more uh, enjoyable to be in studio. <laughs>
1: it's a little more intimate.
2: It is, and I appreciate that, and I, uh, I wanted to offer my condolences, too, on uh, Councilwoman Watson. I uh, Didn't know her, you know, personally, but I did serve um, in the uh, state treasurer's office under Andy Dillon, who was the state treasurer at the time, Mm -hmm. at the time, of course, with the, you know, proceedings in Detroit, the bankruptcy and everything else. And I remember her as a very, very um, formidable advocate, Um, somebody, like you said, who you could tell was truly principled. Yeah. I'm sure uh, her and I would have had our political differences. (laughs) I'm sure. um, But— You know, I have a real respect for people who are grounded in principle, even when I disagree with them, because that advocacy that they bring, you can tell it just comes natural from Mm -hmm, them. mm -hmm. And And then there are something, I think in politics today, there's always this veneer of, of artificial, uh, you know, flavoring maybe. And uh, (laughs) occasionally you come across people that really, truly are passionate and, and, and they don't, you know, they don't hold back. And I think we need a little bit more of that. There's always that risk in politics that no one wants to really kind of show their hand. Sure. But uh, when you find people who are willing to be uh, far more um, forward with what they're thinking and doing, I I just have a respect for that.
1: Yeah. No, I think that's an important important point that both on the right and the left, I think there's an attraction between people who really are about what they're about, uh, really are standing for something and not just there to – to be there or, or to, to, to be in office, but really there for, a, yeah. a, a cause.
2: I, um, I served with, a, um, a few members in the legislature who were on very different <laughs> ends of the spectrum, maybe from where I was, but, um, you know, you could tell they, they spoke with passion and that was always something that I found to be impressive. And if, if I could, I wanted to just correct slightly something you mentioned in, in the intro, oh, if sure. that's okay. Um, so I, I, I know you mentioned you know some of the hawkish nature of things and the withdrawal from Afghanistan. I truly supported the withdrawal from Afghanistan. Okay, uh, I spent decades in the army. Yes, as to say you served. So, in in I I really I wasn't deployed to Afghanistan. I, I spent a day there on a uh, on a on a separate deployment <laughs> that we went to Afghanistan briefly. So I, I wouldn't you know categorize myself as a Afghan war veteran. Mm-hmm. Definitely served in the Iraq War um, and in other deployments as well, but. I felt strongly that we needed to end our engagement in Afghanistan. The way in which it was done and the disastrous, haphazard nature of it all is what really, to me, was, was something that—
1: Was problematic. Oh, it was yeah.
2: devastating. We had loss of life, civilian and military. Uh, we could see this happening in slow motion, and it was something that we all knew was bound to happen, and then it did. And I think maybe uh, beyond the loss of life, perhaps the most insulting thing about it was when the Biden administration and its top military aides tried to tell us that this was an overwhelming success. And I just couldn't accept that that was the case. Okay. I mean, it, it really wasn't.
1: Yeah. So so I do want to get to that. And I want to get sure. to lots of other things that, that that you want to talk about in the run, the current run for, for Congress. But I want to start in a, a little more of a basic place, just Tell me uh, why you're running again for this sure. seat and what you think is different this time than last time. As I said, this was a really close race uh, the last time around. Uh, if, if not for the Democratic wave, this maybe would have gone Republican, this seat, this new seat that uh, we got out of, out of the redistricting effort. Uh, in 2020 uh, but but what do you imagine is going to be uh, different this time uh, as, as you're a candidate again for the same spot
2: mm-hmm. thank you yeah and um you know it is that I'm running again and of course the natural first question is why run again and I told somebody uh, yesterday that you know I think running for Congress might be a diagnosable mental illness, but I'm doing it anyway. Um, not a lot of people want doing to it again. Yeah, not a lot of people want to opt into this yeah. uh, you know hyper uh, competitive type of congressional district too. And having lived through it once, there were a lot of good reasons not to run for Congress. I can tell you the list of not running is long. But there are a few good reasons in which to, to do this, and I feel like I can continue to, to serve. Uh, of course, I have a record of service in the military, and I'm not done wanting to do that and wanting to continue that service, and I think I have more to offer. And honestly, since the last election, I've had some time to reflect on that, and things haven't gotten better for Americans since then. A lot of the problems we were facing then are still problems that we're facing today today. And I think many of them have actually gotten worse. We've seen, I think, a growing and emerging threat from China and other foreign adversaries, but particularly from China that is becoming more aggressive. The, you know, launch of that spy balloon that traversed our country, un, you know, undeterred for like a week or more at a time. Uh, the growing influence they have on social media that's creeping into more and more of our livelihoods. And maybe most frustrating of all is the decision here in Michigan to recruit and bring that Chinese-based corporation into Big Rapids right here in our backyard, the Goshen battery plant that is going to use tax dollars from the state of Michigan to support a Chinese-backed corporation that has direct ties to the Chinese government. Anything that the Chinese government would be doing in our country is not going to be in the best interest of Americans, and we need to be very, very careful about how we go about that. In addition, we're seeing, as you alluded to in your introduction, an increased problem at our southern border. I just toured and came back from the southern border recently, and we saw just the devastating effects of that. I talked to a, uh, a man who runs a, a water pumping station on the Rio Grande River to supply water to the community nearby. And he said if they have a pump that fails in the middle of the night and he has to send a worker to, uh, you know, work on the problem, they will often encounter cartel members that are at that facility unloading either people, drugs, or other illegal contraband coming into our country. I, I stood 100 feet from the trails that the cartel uses to move up to the to the southern side of the border there and then wade across the river. The river was only about six feet deep on the day that we were there. There was a discarded raft in the water. Um, We've now reached the point where the cartels have smuggled in more fentanyl than it would take to kill every single American. So we have a growing and growing problem there. It represents the leading cause of death of Americans my age, age 18 to 45 in America, and the problem's only getting worse. Uh, We also have still stubbornly high cost of living in families, are struggling more and more and more. We have an economy that seems very fragile. We've had bank failures, Uh, interest rates have gone up, housing has become less affordable. So we're still seeing problems that persist, and I can't simply sit back and not do something about it. I have four little kids at home. I want to leave a legacy behind to them that says, I stood up when the time came to try and turn things around and do my part in the process. And ultimately, as I said in my announcement video, I want to leave an America worth defending to my kids. So, so
1: that's a a long list of, of issues that, that you want to focus on if you if you were to be successful and, and get the seat and, and represent us in in Washington. I, I, I always though want to want to ask whether you think as a first term member of Congress. You could have any effect on any of those issues. I mean, I might take issue with with the way you're framing some of these things, and and certainly I would probably disagree with some of the things that you would do in in response. But but my question for folks who are running for Congress is always, what would you do? Uh, yeah. At, you know, if you got elected, the expectations of your party, if you were to get elected, for instance, uh, the 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 restraints that are placed on people who are new in, in Washington, w- what opportunity would there even be for these things?
2: Yeah, and, you know, I guess I would turn that framing on its head and say, well, does that mean we do nothing? Does that mean we don't step up and run? Whomever is elected in this district will be a new member of Congress. Mm-hmm. And it's that old adage, how do you eat an elephant? One bite at a time. <laughs> You've got to take that first step. And to me, I'm not under any wild illusion that I'm going to come into to Congress and, you know, become Speaker of the House the next day or something like that. Um, my goal is to go to Congress and represent the district that elected me to serve as their advocate. And to the absolute extent that I'm able, that is going to be the, the job that I sign up to do every single day. And I've got a little bit of experience in this, having served in the state legislature. I mean, I had never been elected to anything before I got elected to the State House of Representatives. Uh, I had to learn quickly how to navigate those issues, work within a caucus and work within a legislative chamber, as well as in, you know, you have opposite chambers that often have divergent views and priorities. You have a governor or, you know, in the national level, certainly the president that has different priorities as well. And you have to find a way to work through those Um, You know, nothing's perfect. No form of government will be truly perfect and nobody gets everything that they want. But I think we have to have people that go to Washington with the right intentions, with a willingness to work hard and a willingness to work toward the objectives that they have. And that's really what I'm seeking to do. I'm not giving any false expectations of people that I have a a magic wand to fix every problem. I'm saying, look, I'm going, they're committed to work on the issues that I think are important. And I think they're important to other people in this district as well.
1: So let's talk about the district itself. It's a place you know quite well, uh, having represented it in the state legislature and, and run for this seat before. What, in your mind, are the most important issues to people living in that district? right now? And what, as a member of Congress, could you do to address those things?
2: Yeah, certainly. I think um, there there are four what I consider to be top issues or four strands of issues that are most important. You know, cost of living continues to be a challenge that people are facing. And that has a lot of certainly subcategories below it, whether that's housing costs, whether that's the, the increasingly fragile cracks in the economy, whether it's inflation, uh, fuel costs, energy costs, and other things that people need to go about their daily lives—that is a issue that people, you know, are focused on as well. I think that's one that kind of confronts you and grinds away day to day. Beyond that, we see certainly issues of national security, which I pointed out—the growing threats that we're seeing abroad, um, you know, the Chinese influence geopolitically abroad, certainly Russia's invasion of Ukraine, and other—you know—we have Iran potentially having a nuclear weapon. All of these very high, highly destabilizing effects going on internationally that are a threat to our American way of life and our American influence abroad as well that we cannot just whistle past the graveyard on and think isn't going to be a problem and a threat that we're facing. We also have uh, high crime rates. Lansing now and has been for the last few years ranks among the most violent cities in America. So we have high crime and people's neighborhood security really being threatened Uh, And then, of course, I I touched on the border, too, where we have border security problems. We have, um, you know, more people on the terror watch list that have been apprehended at our border than any time in history. And we have drugs and fentanyl coming in across the border and, you know, killing more Americans every single day. So those, I think, are the four are the foremost, uh, you know, concerns that I see, Mm -hmm. you know, that are. Issues that Congress has a role in tackling, certainly, you know, roads and infrastructure are important. That's, you know, tends to be more of a state issue. Local schools are a state and local issue predominantly. Um, But on on the national level of how we address these things, you know, certainly securing our border, having our national security under control, um, our cost of living challenges, and then how we influence what happens with crime in our in our communities, are important. important Let, let's
1: talk about two of those issues that I think of as more local and and I guess kitchen table issues as, as than the others. Cost of living mm-hmm. and, and crime. Uh, cost of living. Uh, n- no question, we've been going through a rough a rough patch in the economy. Things are getting slightly better with inflation, uh, but there are still a lot of concerns. Uh, instability in in some sectors, tell me what you would prescribe for those problems
2: yeah, well, I think it starts with mitigating some of the printing and spending of money that has come out of Washington on a very aggressive path, so you can't you know every time we print new money, it dilutes the money that is in circulation already, so then everything becomes more expensive. Uh, they dump money into the into the supply you know and and, and that works its way through the economy of course the the entities, the banks and others that get the first crack at that money, it's worth the most at that point. And then by the time it gets to you and I, and we go to, you know, buy a loaf of bread at the grocery store, a dozen eggs, God forbid, with how expensive those got, um, you know, our money is worth far less. And we've seen supply chain challenges that have also brought about inefficiencies that have gone up the cost of living as well. You know, we can't just continue to expect that we're going to spend our way in the federal government out of an inflationary crisis. And you've seen the Federal Reserve increasing interest rates to try and get ahead of the inflationary uh, uh, cost curve that we're seeing. But then the, the Federal Congress then steps up to print more money. So it's almost one hand is working one way and the other hand is working in the opposite. If they really want to dry up the money supply, they raise the interest rates, which they've done. But that means you can't have Congress then continuing to print and spend new but, money,
1: but the Inflation Reduction Act, for instance, does things like lower prescription drug prices. It invests in domestic energy production. Sure, things that that are also really important. How do you how would you balance those concerns against right. these other concerns about
2: making well, the yeah. economy less stable? It's a little bit like when you vote on any legislation. If you vote yes, you're kind of buying the whole burrito, right? You can't take out the parts you don't like once it's built. Um, but that's why it's important to advocate along the way for the policies that may be good within a, a umbrella. I think a frustrating thing for most Americans is when they see what should be a relatively simple proposal get loaded up with a bunch of other stuff too, and it seems to be a more um, prominent problem at the federal level where things you know become a Christmas tree. Uh, at the state level, it was a little more Pared down. We had to have a little bit more semblance of connectability to the issues we were, you know, you couldn't take a bill related to road funding and then do something on, uh, you know, schools, for example. It was, you know, kind of separated that way. Right. Um, but at the federal level, you know, there are some good things that can come about, but you also have to look at, okay, how much are these going to cost? Where's the money going to come from? What's and the, you would, you would err on
1: the, on the, the fiscal side of, of those things. Sure. I mean, I, think- I, I don't want to cut you off, but we're going to run out of time, of okay. course. But, and I, want to, I do want to get you to talk just a little about crime. Uh, yeah. Gun control, uh, we've seen some measures in Lansing for the first time in a really long time. Congress is thinking about tighter controls on the, the flow of weapons. You talk about the flow of fentanyl across the border, right. the flow of weapons inside the country probably dwarfs that. Is that the where we should be focusing?
2: Well, I think we need to focus on what is causing these things to happen. You know, this this rash of gun violence and these, uh, you know, mass shootings that have gone on. you know, when you really boil it down, most, nearly all of these are brought about by generally younger white men who are troubled, we find after the fact, are generally from troubled backgrounds and have a troubled past and generally had some warning signs there. Why is that? Why is that demographically the same for virtually all of these incidents. Mm-hmm. I think there's something there that we have to discover and we have to see. I don't think it means we take away people's right to self-defense. That's something that, you know, I feel strongly we that every American has that right to a god-given right to inherently have their right to self-defense. So I don't want to see us always jump to the result or the conclusion that we need to take away people's rights to self-defense. I think there are a lot of other contributing factors to this as well that we probably have to have some pretty tough conversations about as to why these things are happening in very select mm-hmm. demographic groups. And I, I I don't know the answer as to why that is. I think there are a lot of contributing factors. I think it's partly cultural. I think it's also a, a, an erosion of our Value for life and in a selfishness among people that they don't have any capacity to to really think about others i mean you see that with construction on the road right now somebody forgets to merge on time and you know (laughs) the guy behind him wants to run through their back seat right that's just one small example you extrapolate that over thousands and millions of examples and you see this increase in violence and a less regard for just everybody's human dignity yeah
1: Okay, Tom Barrett, it was really great to have you here to talk about your ideas and your new campaign for Congress in the 7th District. We will, of course, have you back uh, so we can have a more extended conversation about uh, about those ideas. But uh, I really do appreciate you coming by. Thanks.
2: Thank you for having me.
1: When we come back, we're going to continue talking about the 7th Congressional District, but this time talk with someone who would like to oppose Tom Barrett next year for this seat. Curtis Hertel is a Democrat and a former state senator here in Michigan. He's going to join us to talk about why he thinks he should replace. Alyssa Slotkin. We'll also get going on the phones and on social. 313-577-1019 is the number. You can also go to Twitter and hashtag Detroit Today, and we'll work you into the conversation. We'll be right back with more Detroit Today. This is Detroit Today on 101.9 WDET. i Stephen Henderson, and thanks for tuning in. We've been talking about a potentially contentious congressional race in Michigan next year. Uh, we're talking about the 7th Congressional District, which is represented right now by Congresswoman Alyssa Slotkin, who has decided to run for Senate. The last time she faced off with Tom Barrett, who was our guest in the first part of the show, There was a lot of money spent in this race and a staggering amount of money, at least twenty seven million dollars, an unimaginable amount uh, for one congressional seat. And it's hard to know if that much money will be spent in this race. In other words, was this a precedent? Was this just a turning point where we're just going to see a lot more expensive kinds of campaigns unfold in this really competitive part of the district? Uh, one reason that people believe this race will will un, almost certainly be very competitive next year and maybe attract that kind of money is because Tom Barrett is running again on the Republican side and Curtis Hertel has decided to throw his hat in on the Democratic side. And he's another person with a lot of political recognition here in the state of Michigan. In 2001, he was elected Ingham County Commissioner, and then he was elected to the Ingham County Register of Deeds. For six years, he worked for the Department of Community Health and served as the department's legislative liaison. And from 2015 to 2022, he was a state senator. And then he worked for the Whitmer administration in Lansing as a legislative director. Uh, But it's not just Curtis Hertel Jr. himself that has political experience. A lot of his family is soaked in this world as well. Hertel's father, of course, served in the Michigan State House and was the House Speaker. His uncle John was also in the state Senate, and his brother is now a state senator. So what would happen if Curtis Hertel Jr. was elected to represent the 7th Congressional District here in Michigan, What does he think of the biggest challenges facing residents living in and around Lansing? To talk more about this, we've got Curtis Hertel Jr. with us. Curtis, welcome back to
0: Detroit Today. Thank you. So happy to be here. Yeah.
1: So, as I said in the intro here, politics is really in your, bro- in your blood. Your brother's a state senator, your uncle was a uh, representative and House Speaker. Uh, why did you decide to get into politics in the first place?
0: Well, I believe that public service is a noble calling. Um, I I think the politics is uh, certainly interesting for people, but really what's most important is how we serve them. Uh, I think that if you look at my record, uh, it's been about working with anyone to make uh, people's lives better. Uh, I served in the minority for eight years in the Michigan legislature, and we never used that as an excuse to not get things done. We made relationships, we worked across the aisle, we found points of agreement. And that, to me, uh, is what Washington, D.C. needs. Uh, there's, there's too much. You know, people don't care whether Republicans or Democrats are winning in Washington. Uh, what they care about is their family, their family's struggles, uh, the road they have to drive to work and whether it's fixed, their kid's school, whether their kid can find a job when, once they're done with it. Uh, that's what they're sitting at their table worrying about. And if we spend a little more time worrying about their kitchen table instead of what's happening uh, in the day-to-day politics of the world, I think we would be in much better shape and much better servants to the people.
1: So uh, as I said, this was a really competitive district last time, narrowly decided a lot of money spent on both sides on behalf of the candidates, uh, tell me what it is that you think are the most important priorities uh, if you were to be elected to represent this uh, this this district, and uh, tell me about policy solutions. That's always my big question. Uh, you know, I, I'm I'm I guess a little cynical about uh, people who want to run for Congress but have a long list of ideas about how things could change because. If you know anything about Washington, and I'm sure you do, uh, it takes a long time to get to a position where you can really deliver for the people on big issues. So in some ways, it, is, it becomes about what you can deliver on maybe smaller issues in the district. I'd, I'd love to hear your take on how you would represent the folks in the 7th District and, and what you feel like you could have an effect on from a policy
0: standpoint. Yeah, I, I think that the most important thing that anyone who serves in public service, uh, the best skill they should have is to listen. Uh, I think too often politicians do a lot of talking, uh, but they don't do a whole lot of listening. And uh, as someone who has served in the past, I think our record is to go out, talk to people, knock on doors, have those relationships, uh, and really serve people in a way. Uh, but doesn't mean we do everything people want. Because, in all honesty, most people would disagree with what they want. But it means that we are actually having those conversations and taking their input. It's also really important that you serve uh, your constituents well when it comes to the the day-to-day parts of their interaction with government. I always tell my staff that when people were calling with a problem, uh, it wasn't their best day. They were rarely calling the legislature uh, as their first tool. They had tried everything else. Government can be hard and unwieldy to actually get help. And so I think that's an important aspect of being a congressman as well, is actually uh, doing that constituent work, helping people and finding the ways to do that. Beyond that, we, we face enormous challenges in the country. Uh, the, the high cost of raising a family, the high cost of prescription drugs, uh, constitutional rights that are being taken away. But what I see in Washington, D.C. is too often two sides talking past each other. Uh, A lot of it's uh, just uh, statements to try to get Facebook and Twitter posts and those kinds of things, Mm -hmm. and not the actual work to get things done for people. You know, when I was in the state legislature, we were at a budget crisis at one point. Um, The Republicans had passed a non-negotiated budget. The governor had used uh, her tools to actually... Uh, changed a lot of that budget back and forth, and we couldn't come to an agreement. And I was brought in by the majority leader who was a Republican, the speaker that was a Republican, and the governor to negotiate and get us there. But we sat down at that table the first time. We actually sat down at a small bar uh, on the uh, in Lansing. I think that a lot of great great negotiations can be made in places like that. Uh, we all sat down, and the first thing I said is, let's not talk about politics. Let's talk about our families. Let's talk about our goals. Let's talk about what we want, what we actually want to see get done for people. And that can lead us into a place where we can find agreement. And so, uh, you know, I, I respect what you're saying, but at the end of the day, uh, it's difficult for a freshman member of Congress to get anything done. Frankly, it's difficult for Congress to get anything done these days. Mm-hmm. But I do think we need to send a little bit of Michigan common sense to Washington to have those conversations, uh, and, and so that that's what I'm focused on. Yeah.
1: So uh, the president is a Democrat right now, and uh, Democrats have had control of both houses of Congress until this year. Republicans are in charge of the House right now. Uh, talk about the Biden agenda, and I guess how that. Uh, comports with the way that, that you see things and would want to do things in Lansing and then point out things that you might want to do differently?
0: Yeah, I, I think the the, uh, the biggest thing that I would say um, is the investment in people. You know, the, the president took over in an incredibly tough time in America. Uh, we were still in the middle of a pandemic, and we have uh, got ourselves out of that. But the results of that is uh, people were... Uh, coming back and feeling comfortably part of the economy again uh, has done amazing things in creating jobs, but has also uh, – and, and our jobless rates are at some of the lowest levels uh, in history. But on the opposite side of that, it has um, increased inflation and the cost of living for families. Uh, so for me, uh, you know, those are the kind of things uh, that we need to continue to work on and continue to be focused on. Uh, the high cost of prescription drugs. We're one of the only countries that does not use the power of the federal government and the power of people to negotiate the price of drugs for everyone. Uh, I think that's a huge issue. Um, as we see those prices skyrocket way past inflation. Mm -hmm. Uh, We, because of the power of the drug companies, the power of lobbyists, uh, have said you can't negotiate for everyone else's prices. We're the, we're the only country in the world that does this. Uh, we're the only country in the world that pays the advertising costs uh, for the drug companies. We have to uh, use the power. We don't have to work for corporate special interests when we're on the floor of uh, the U.S. Congress. We should be working for the people we represent and what's best for them. Uh, so that's one area where I think we can find common ground and work together to solve those problems.
1: Hmm. So um, we've been talking a lot about keeping people in the state of Michigan, and the governor is really, really keen on that right now and has got this new council convened to think about ways that we might do that. When you were in the state senate, you introduced a bill to keep university graduates in the state by offering them a tax credit. Uh, Talk a little about that bill and what you think we should be doing, what you you could do from Congress to try to make Michigan a more attractive place to, to come to or to stay.
0: Yeah, we offered a tax credit, tr- credit to try to get young people uh, to uh, be able to write off some of the interest on their student loans uh, on their Michigan taxes. And I think it's incredibly important because this generation is the slowest generation to buy a car, to start a family. Uh, and, and a lot of us believe that that is, or what we hear is that that's because of cultural differences in this generation. But I think a lot of it is they don't have a lot of choices. You know, if you, if the, the cost of of colleges skyrocketed to the point where most people graduate with loans. In Michigan, the average kid graduates with about thirty-five thousand dollars in loans. Um, that that makes it very difficult to start a new life, and it's hindering our entire economy. Uh, so, uh, I think that is a, a huge uh, important part of it. I also think it's important uh, in Michigan. We now are a state that young people want to live in because they have all their full civil rights. You know, for a long time, under Republican rule, uh, you could be fired uh, because of who you are or who you loved. Um, Michigan uh, was on the precipice of being uh, in a situation where all abortions would be illegal. Uh, The people saw that, and we got rid of the 1931 law. But people don't want to live in a state where their civil rights are being taken away where they're not going to be respected for who they are, where they have the government involved in their private medical decisions. that That is not a state that people want to live in. And so I, I think that some of the changes we've made already will help bring young people back to the state. Uh, and, and, and there are lessons that we can also do in Washington, D.C. I don't think we should be a country where people can be discriminated on for who they love or who they are. I don't think as a country that the federal government should be involved in the private medical decisions, telling a woman because of somebody else's beliefs that they can't uh, receive an abortion, even in extreme cases of rape and incest. I think that's a huge difference between me and my opponent. Uh, my opponent is 100% pro-life. Uh, he is uh, he said, said that he knows he's right about it. Uh, he also at one point said he's a politician, not a doctor. I agree with him on the third point. Hmm. On the third point, I certainly agree. Um, he's not a politician. He, he, he's he's uh, he is a politician. He's not a doctor, and he we should be we should stay out of the private medical decisions of individual citizens. Um, and you know, I see civil rights as a huge issue. The right to uh, someone's body is a huge issue, mm-hmm. and the idea that that's at risk in this country now uh, is a scary thought.
1: Yeah. Okay, uh, Curtis Hertel, Jr. It's really great to have you here talking about your recently announced run for the seventh congressional district seat in uh, mid Michigan. Uh, Of course, we will want to talk to you many times, I'm sure, between now and next spring. I look
0: forward to it. Uh, And anytime you need me on, I'll be here. Yes,
1: absolutely. Thanks for being with
0: us. Thank you, sir.
1: When we come back, we're going to continue talking about Michigan politics, but pivot to discuss the state's Republican Party, some of the issues that organization has been facing and a literal fight that broke out at a GOP state committee meeting over the weekend. Yeah, you heard that right. A legitimate, actual fight. What is going on? Craig Mauger, who covers state government and politics for the Detroit News, will join us to let us know. Stay with us for more Detroit Today. This is Detroit Today on 101.9 WDET. i Stephen Henderson, and thanks for joining. We've been talking about the 7th Congressional District race in Michigan because it's expected to be pretty heated next year. But speaking of heated politics, there is something really heated that seems to be going on in the state's Republican Party. Last Saturday, a physical altercation at a GOP state committee meeting drew police officers. The scuff up didn't seem to be too big of a deal, but the context here really matters. State GOP chair Christina Caramo is not very popular right now, and her party is struggling to to raise money. And just to manage things, to talk about what happened on Saturday and the broader challenges facing the Michigan Republican Party, we've got Craig Mauger here with us. He covers state government and politics for the Detroit News and recently wrote a piece about the scuffle that broke out at this Michigan GOP committee meeting. Craig, welcome back to Detroit Today.
3: Hey, thank you so much for having me.
1: So tell me about this meeting in Clare. What was the meeting about and why did a fight erupt? (laughs)
3: <laughs> so many reasons. H- how do you explain what is unexplainable <laughs> sometimes? But uh, the Michigan Republican Party is in a major state of turmoil and has been for some time now. Christina Caramo, an outsider, uh, someone who doesn't have a ton of political experience, was elected chairwoman of the party in February. She was promising sweeping change to how this party operates. After the first few months of her tenure as chair, A lot of Republicans within the party are not happy with the way she's doing business, mainly because she's not providing them information about the way she's doing business. She has not given them detailed information about how much money she's raised, how she plans to get rid of hundreds of thousands of dollars in debt the party has, or what she's doing with the money that she has raised. Amid this frustration, there's been some turnover among key staff positions. And eventually, on Saturday, she scheduled a special meeting to try to get to the bottom of everything, to try to resolve everything, to try to tell people what's happening. And that's when the fight occurred. And
1: it's unusual, of course, to see physical altercation in a political context. Tell us what actually happened here, and I guess how big a deal the physical altercation actually was.
3: Uh, Yeah, so... There's a man from Wayne County named James Chapman, who who is a pretty um, out there activist. He's very outspoken. You can Google him and find lots of information about his background. But he drove from Wayne County to Claire. He's a Republican delegate. And he had the expectation that he was going to be in the room for the state committee meeting. The way Christina Caramo has been running these state committee meetings is she only lets members of the state committee and other high ranking party officials into the meeting james chapman was frustrated that he was not allowed into this meeting eventually as the meeting was unfolding inside this conference room he started jiggling the doorknob to one of the doors to the meeting room it was, i'm told it was a side door so it was kind of odd that this doorknob was jiggling mark DeYoung, who is the clare county republican party chairman noticed the door jiggling really aggressively and he thought oh a worker at the hotel this is the hotel in flair where this was taking place he thought a worker was trying to get into the room he begins to walk over to the door he noticed someone make a profane gesture through a window in the door and he's like that's odd why would an employee of this hotel make that gesture toward (laughs) me through this window so he goes over there opens the door and Mark DeYoung says when he opened the door, he was immediately kicked in a very sensitive private area of his body by Chapman. And that led to a physical fight between Chapman and DeYoung. As for how serious the fight was, Mark DeYoung ended up going to the emergency room. He told me on Saturday he had a broken rib. Hmm. A lot of people were there. He didn't tell me this specifically, but other people said he told them that he broke his dentures while the fight was occurring. So it was oh a pretty serious fight. Yeah.
1: Yeah, so so let's pull the lens back again and talk about where this leaves the state GOP. As you as you say, there there are a lot of questions about Christina Caramo and the way that she's managing the party. You, you now have some other folks who are stepping up and saying that they want to they want to take more leadership. A, a role more of a leadership role in turning the party kind of back to what it was. Rick Snyder, the former governor, the last Republican governor elected here, uh, he he says he he can get the party under control. Uh, what what is the prospect for this continuing to be really ugly? And I guess what is the chance that Republicans get their act together and and get back to some. I guess, some normalcy where where they could raise money and maybe compete a little better in in statewide elections.
3: Yeah, I mean, it it kind of depends on which Republicans you're talking about. I mean, everything in 2024 for Michigan Republicans is going to focus on the state house. They have to flip two seats to take back control of the state house Mm -hmm. and break into this unified power that the Democrats have right now rick snyder and other business people are trying to find ways around the state party to help the house republicans win back control you know that's their attack we're not going to work through the state party we're going to work through raising this money getting it directly into these state house races getting this done the state party though is still a major force in politics and it's hard to work around it the party is stuck right now uh the party infrastructure is incredibly stuck because there is a wide number of delegates and party insiders who want to get rid of Christina Caramo, who've lost faith in Christina Caramo, but there's not enough of them to remove her from the position. Right. So, how do you resolve this? It's it's a bad, bad situation for them.
1: So, if the money issue that they supposedly have, and, and again, nobody quite knows what the money issue is because Christina Caramo has not been terribly forthcoming. Uh, about what what's going on with finances, but but project into next year. If if the party is in financial trouble, what does that mean for houses, uh, races in the state house? What does that mean for some of these congressional races that are are, are, are shaping up? Uh, it, it seems like it, it would really threaten Republican hopes yeah. for the things that they want next year.
3: Yeah, I'd say two things on that. One. It's going to be a massive distraction for them. I mean, these people like Tom Barrett, who you were just talking about his race on your show. Tom Barrett does not want the political spotlight of Michigan being on physical fights between Michigan Republicans as he tries to flip a seat where there's lots of swing voters. I mean, this will be a distraction up and down the ballot. You can already see Democrats are making lots of hay of what happened over the weekend, and they will continue to do that. It's going to be a distraction. Number two usually the Republican Party is the organizing uh, mechanism for all the Republican candidates and causes. Mm -hmm. When you take the party out of this, it's not just so easy to say, well, Rick Snyder is going to step into this and fix it because he's not relevant with a lot of today's Republicans. The Republican Party is a way to bridge the gap between Donald Trump and those old-school Republicans that have long been you know, powerful in Michigan. You take the party infrastructure out of that, and it's pretty difficult to move forward. Just look at what happened in 2022. You had the DeVos family saying, we're going to figure out all these ways to operate around the Michigan Republican Party. Mm-hmm. It didn't work out very well for them.
1: Okay. Uh, Craig Mogger, uh, uh reporter who covers state government and politics for the Detroit News. It's always really great to have you here uh, with us. Uh, I, I'm gonna, we've got about a minute left, but I, I want to get you to prognosticate just a little about what's likely to happen. Does this get worse? Do we, do we see more just literal breaking down of, of the process here, or does this get sorted out before next year?
3: I think, I think the answer to both those questions is yes. It's going to get worse, <laughs> because I think some people are turning on Christina, who had been sympathetic to her even before. They're not happy what, with what even happened on Saturday. But ultimately, I think the party, to some degree, will come together by next November, because nothing unites people of one party than the idea of taking on the other party. Yeah. So I think yes and yes.
1: All right. That's a, great, that's a great answer, Craig. Thanks so much for joining us. Thank you. All right. That's going to do it for us today. Come back tomorrow when we're going to talk about how to make government work in a digital age, why people often don't like working in government, and how to make those jobs maybe a little more attractive. Detroit Today is produced by Sam Corey and Nick Austin. Our technical director and engineer is Matthew Trevathan. And our student producer is Mira Kumar. Detroit Today's music is created by Sam Bobian and Will Sessions. This is 1019 WDETFM, Detroit's NPR station. Your connection to news, music, and conversation. We'll talk again tomorrow.